Unicorns, my personal journey to Boston 2014. Hello and welcome, my friends. This is Chris, and this is the third in my series of personal podcasts that I am doing to air out my brain and deal with my father's cancer and gear up to run for the Liver Foundation at the Boston Marathon this year. So note, even though this is on the Run Run Live podcast feed, this is not the Run Run Live podcast. You have fair warning to skip now because I'm not talking about running. This is a personal thing. Standard Run Run Live episodes will be labeled as such. As part of this project, whatever this project is, I'm collecting donations for the American Liver Foundation for my running of the Boston Marathon this year, and I wanted to layer on some purpose for the event to make it more personal. And the donation links are in the show notes and at http colon slash slash go dot liverfoundation.org slash go to slash cykt russell. And my story is that I already had a number for this year's race, and I didn't need to fundraise, but with my dad's health declining, I thought it would be a decent thing to do to dedicate this to him and my family. I am the youngest of four. I have two older sisters and an older brother. We didn't always get along with each other as siblings do, but we are close. And working through my dad's cancer has given us the opportunity to spend a lot more time together, and it's been fun to talk through shared family experiences and memories. And as the youngest, I don't think I have the depth of memories as my brother and sisters, but they're there, and as we spend time together, those memories are unearthed like the quiet turnings of some dusty album. And there's nothing bad there. There is some funny stuff. Mostly it's just bits and pieces and vignettes that we can compare notes on and reminisce about. And I remember my dad coming home from work one day with a full-sized electric organ for the living room because my sisters were both taking piano lessons, and I guess he thought that this would give them some additional enablement. And at some point, we acquired a full-sized piano, at least one. And my mom taught my girls, when they were little, how to play songs on it when they went over for visits. My dad designed and built a giant two-story, like, 16-car garage out of pre-stressed concrete beams. And I can, I can remember helping shingle the roof with cedar shakes and snapping those chalk lines as a kid and, and knocking the shingle nails true row by row all day long. And to this day, I'll look up at the sky and I'll say, geez, this would be a perfect day for shingling a roof. <laughs> He and my brother would work on cars together in the garage because my dad worked in a garage when he was a kid. And they had every tool and machine needed to do anything. And I remember one time in the 80s, I dropped my car off at the house. It needed a universal joint in the front end. And I was going to help them replace it, which for me meant handing them tools and staying out of the way. And I took off for, to run an errand. And by the time I came back, they had done it already. <laughs> And my dad and I, when I was really little, would go for walks in the woods up in New England where I grew up. And I don't remember the walks so much as the trees. I can still identify every tree in New England, every native tree, by its leaves and its bark. 
and if pressed, I could make a serviceable whistle from a young willow sapling with a jackknife, which was one of our spring rituals. The red oak, the white pine, the ash, which is used for axe handles and hockey sticks, used to be anyhow, the poplar, the white and gray birch, the pig nuts, and the shagbark hickories, whose bounty we would collect in the fall for fireside cracking and snacking, the hawthorn and the elderberry, my connection to the natural world that I treasure so dearly was probably born in those New England summers. And my dad used to love to uh, chop wood. Till very, he was doing it into well into his 80s to feed the wood stove all winter long. And he taught me how to swing an axe. And his favorite axe was a light, thin-bladed axe for limbing the felled trees. And he would grind the cheeks off of standard splitting axes to create that perfect, perfect tool. And he taught me how to swing a maul to split the green hard wood and how to stack the split logs so they would dry. And he showed me that you could split any log with a sledgehammer and a set of wedges. And the wedges in my garage came from his collection. And I used them every year as I relived the pure visceral joy of bringing the heavy maul down on the yielding log in the sultry autumn afternoons. There's nothing I enjoy more than becoming lost in a large woodpile with my axe, my maul, my hammer, and my wedges. And that's the lesson here. There's peace and honor in a job well done. It doesn't matter that you can pay someone a 100 bucks to mow your lawn or drop off a cord of pre-split wood in your driveway. That takes the honor out of it. The pride and honor of reducing a pile of logs to a neatly stacked and tarped pile of BTUs for the coming winter is a feeling of intellectual freedom that I'm thankful for. And today I'm going to share with you a chat I had with a friend of mine and fellow goon squad runner, Michael, about running for charity. And he's running for the Liver Foundation as well. And after that, I'm going to read a story my brother wrote recently about some something funny from our childhood. I never realized how good a writer my brother was until he began to comment on the Caringbridge site that my sister set up for my dad's friends to check in on. My brother was always the best storyteller in our family. He could spin the tallest tales with a straight face and he could get away with almost anything. Cheers. What a beautiful day today, huh? Yeah, it's gorgeous out. Man, it's nice after all this uh, snow and ice we've had to get a nice sunny day. I mean, it's probably only 32 degrees out, but it feels like spring break. Have you yeah. been outside yet? Oh, no, I haven't actually. I've looked outside, but I haven't left the house. Ah, well, you got to get out and get a run in. So um, so you're really big into the uh, the charity stuff, into the the marathon running, and you're also, you know, you got a great combination of stuff you're doing. You know, you're doing a lot of running. <laughs> you remember the Goon Squad, so that says something about your running style. And I'm always seeing you out doing yeah, I'm always seeing you out doing some adventure, but you're also, you know, organizing and managing and working with charity. So, you know, tell me a little bit about how you manage all that stuff and, and not, you know, not get, get crazy. Well, what really helps me manage it is that I love every part of it. Um, it nothing that I do ever feels like a chore. Even the fundraising mostly involves interacting with runners or people that support my running or have done it on their own. So I think everybody 
gets it, especially this day and age. If you don't know somebody who's raising money for Boston, then you're probably living under a rock. Um, even working on the weekends at Greater Boston Running Company, I would do it for free if they would let me. It gives me a chance to geek out about running as much as I want and to help people improve their own running and get geared up. So I do try every now and then to make sure that my interests are diversified and I'm not devoting every waking hour to it. But um, it's a passion of mine, and it's just something I love to be a part of in every way. Yeah, I know. I I think you hit on something there, right? Uh, The reason it works for you is because it's authentic. And see, a lot of times people are struggling, especially if it's their, if they're new to charity running or they're, you, you know, they put themselves in these situations kind of because they think they have to, not because they want to. And people sense that there's no authenticity there, right? Right. You know, that's actually something my manager at work has commented on, is that he loves people that work at the store and do this because it's what they want to do and it's not a job. So when I'm there... There's no pressure to be, like, the best salesman in the world. I look at it as having conversations with people, and I think that's when you have the most success in anything. Yeah, and that's not just working in a uh, in a running store. That's, that's in life, right? So I'm constantly, I mean, just this week I was out on the road doing some, some sales gigs at Prospects, and I'm constantly counseling the, the salespeople who work for me and with me to be authentic, right? And if you have good intent going into an engagement, then that will show. That'll show more than all the other preparation you can do. Exactly. Yeah, so that's cool. You and your wife are out doing something this year. You're in the American Liver Foundation as well as I am, although I kind of snuck in at the finish line here. So what's that organization like? What's your experience with these guys? Well, I first ran for liver in 2009, which was my first time running a marathon and doing anything of this nature. It actually, I had stopped running from basically the end of high school in 2000 until I picked it back up again in August of 2008. And I set the goal for myself of running the Boston Marathon because I know, especially living here, once you tell people that you're going to run Boston, you better damn well do it. <laughs> uh, so I was looking around for charities, and I ended up pretty much by happenstance on the liver team. And what I love about it is that it's a big team. There's lots of there's a great support network. The group runs are very well organized and well staffed, and the infrastructure is really there to help you succeed. I think on a number of levels, whether or not it's fundraising help or training run help or just having people to bounce ideas off of, it really is a great group. Yeah, and it seems like they're fairly supportive of the the athletic part of the event as well, where a lot of the charities, I kind of bristle because they make it all about the charity and zero about the running. You know, it's almost like you you get looked down upon if you're actually thinking too much about the athletic endeavor itself. So how are these guys with that sort of thing? We have a coach, Jorge Martinez, as part of, uh, I think his, coaching program is E3 Training Solutions, so give him a little shout-out because he deserves it for the time he volunteers with the team. He does training plans on a number of different levels, and it kind of takes the guesswork out of it, I'm sure, for a lot of new people to marathoning. I'm following my own training program. I've still pretty much stuck to the long-run schedule that Jorge has set out, and I know that you know, the Marathon Coalition has Rick Muir, and he's fantastic. 
and charity teams has our own wild turkey, Bill Pennington, who does a lot for his team. But I agree. When I was revisiting the idea of raising money again to run Boston, which honestly it's one I wouldn't do again, um, but with 2014 being such a special year, I wanted to make sure I was a part of it. I was looking for a team that would have that kind of focus on actually running the race and not just any way to get a bib at this point. It was important to me to have that there. Yeah, I mean, I bumped into you at a lot of these events that I've been doing, too, and, and you look like you're in great shape right now, I mean, compared to a couple of years ago. Absolutely. The training program that I'm on is an offshoot of the Hanson's Marathon Method, which got a lot of press when it first came out because of the idea that 16 miles was the longest long run that you would do, and people focused on that. And really the idea is you're putting in a lot more quality miles during the week instead of loading up on one run that's going to leave you tired and possibly prone to injury at the end of the week. I've never done this kind of training before. I've never done multiple double-digit runs in a week, and I think at this point I don't even have any runs shorter than six miles that are ever scheduled for me, which is a fairly big difference from pretty much deciding the distance that I wanted to run right before the run, making it up as I went along and picking my long run mileage, just increasing as I thought should happen. And it's paid immense dividends. Yeah, it really does help your confidence. The Hanson plan scares me a little bit because I'm a little bit older than you and it's fairly intense and it's got some back-to-back stuff that I think might break me. But other than that, you know, I think the midweek long runs are, again, that's something I discovered a few years back as well that, that really makes a difference in confidence and fitness. Not not super yeah. long, but you're talking an hour and a half or, you know, an hour and 15 minutes with some quality in that run, you know, some pickups or some surges or something. And it really, uh, it takes to the next level. Right. On Tuesday this week, I had interval training. And where before I might have maybe done like a half mile warm up and then kind of done maybe five or six by 800 meters. This was a two mile warm up and then two by three mile repeats with a mile in between repeat. And then I was supposed to do two miles as a cool down for a total of I think 11 and a half miles or 11 miles. I only did one, but it was still a 10 mile day and fairly uh, high quality miles i would say they're called something something of substance workout yeah yep 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 yeah i'm with you on that the longer the intervals i always hear people doing yasso 800 i'm saying hey you run the marathon this track stuff is great but you gotta stretch out you gotta do at least a mile um for it to be applicable to the marathon you're right there with boston this year you know what do you expect i I don't know what to expect this year whether it's going to be sort of screwy or Especially running way, you know, back with the the charity folks, we're not going to get off the line till you know eleven thirty or something, right? Right. It's um, it's going to be an entirely different experience. And this is only my third Boston, and the first one was obviously my first one, so there's that. The second one was in 2012, which was the heat wave year, so that's kind of special in itself. And this year, with the challenges, it's going to present. I'm most worried about having food and having liquids um, throughout the course of the morning while we're waiting, given that we're really not going to be able to bring much into Athens Village. You know, thinking about this and looking at the announcements and stuff, 
I think he would probably get away with carrying like a, you know, a plastic grocery bag with a couple of bottles and some food in it. You know, I think it might be like one of those iPod things where they tell you not to do it, but they're not going to shoot you if you show up with one. You know, it's so tough to tell because they're, they're really, it seems like they're putting a foot down. Yeah, and that's, I think that's for the backpacks and the, and the um, duffel bags and that sort of stuff, which makes sense. Right. I, I wish I could say that it makes sense. I absolutely 100% understand safety first, but I personally, it feels like a punishment for the runners to me. And it doesn't, if they're going to have people on the course with bags and they won't be able to police the entire course, I don't know that it makes a lot of sense to um, restrict the athlete's village that way. But I understand it, and there's not a lot of point in uh, railing against it. We all have to make do, and if it does make us all safer, then, you know, that's what it's all about. Yeah, yeah, and, you know, this is the first year. I think that they'll learn a lot from this year, and then next year there'll be, you know, something a little bit more sane or, or, you know, at least they'll figure out how to do it better, right? Yeah. Right. So, I mean, it doesn't bother me and doesn't worry me because I've run Boston, you know, 14 times and, and changed. And if I was racing, it might bother me more, but we're going to be sort of dawdling along in the back of the pack. So, yeah, I, I can I can forage as I go. <laughs> it's not going to make or break me. You're running from the back of the pack. When I've seen your pictures at Boston before, you're, you know, you're the guy wearing costumes and uh, having fun back there. It looks like you really enjoy running a marathon. I enjoyed a lot of it in 2012. It kind of broke me towards the end of it uh, when I think the heat just took its toll on me. I try to make every run, as certainly every race, as fun as I can. And if that means dressing in a silly race uniform, then I'm happy to do that. I wore an all-green plaid outfit for my uh, 150K trail race. And, uh, you know, wearing the Brooks running skirt in 2012 got a lot of people's attention on the course and a lot of people cheered it on. And sometimes that's all it takes to keep you going when you're at mile 24 and just trying to put one foot in front of the other. Yeah, and sometimes you don't want a lot of attention when you're in that spot, too, so it can backfire, but... That's true. Yeah, that's right. To wrap things up, what would be your advice after doing this for a few years to folks thinking about running for a charity or running for a marathon? What would you say they need to think about? I think as far as running for a charity, you have to understand that it is a big commitment, and it's got to be more than just sending out emails. Um, You have to be persistent. You have to try to plan things, and I think that it helps when people feel a connection to what you're doing. That's why I try to post my training logs and how things are going so that people can see that I'm putting my fair share of hard work into it as well. And I'm putting in the hours and the miles. And um, I think it helps when people know that you're not just doing it as a life experience. This isn't a bucket list thing for me. This is something that I take very seriously. And I, going into a marathon in general, for people, I think that's how they need to approach it. it. You have to respect the distance and you have to understand that a marathon is something different from 20 mile run and something different than any other thing that you've done before. And if there's one thing that I think I've seen as a mistake from other runners is not having done any kind of race leading up 
to marathon race day. I think you have to know how you're going to feel the night before. You have to know how to pack a race bag. You have to know how jitters affect you in the first few miles of a race and how to overcome them and how to stay within yourself. And the only way you can do that is by practicing racing and not just practicing running. Yeah. And I, that's why I tell people too. I say, you know, don't just send out that form letter from the charity site that says, Hey, it's me. I'm collecting for charity. Tell a story, make it personal, right? Tell a story, exactly. tell it, tell why, tell, tell why you're doing it. it. And yeah. And why people should care. Because I'll tell you this year, they're getting 10 of those letters in their email inbox and they're not going to do anything about it unless you give them a reason. Right. Exactly. Everyone knows yeah. you can copy and paste the same bullet points. Yeah. And think about the web presence as well, because a lot of times the charity websites are just not, you know, they give you your page, but it's not the most effective way to, to have your presence. You can do your own podcast. You can do your own blog. You can do all that stuff to, like you said, draw people into it. All right, man. I'll let you go. I appreciate it. I think it's actually going to be in the 40s tomorrow, man. That'd be wonderful. Are you doing the 20-mile or the 21-mile? Training run? You know, it's going to depend for me because the week before I'm in Utah skiing with my wife's family. I don't have a great track record of running during that time. So if I'm able to make myself get out and run at, you know, 9,000 feet altitude, then I'll probably do it. But if I haven't run all week, I don't think it would be a great idea. Yeah. All right. And are there any other – have you been doing their long runs with the, with the team? Yep. Most of my long runs have been with them. They've been really good. Are, are they doing them all out on the out on the course? Uh, yeah, they start at Equinox in the Financial District, and then they go out Beacon Street up to um, Cleveland Circle, and then around the reservoir where it connects over to Com Ave eventually. Yeah. So you get the hills in, and you get the latter part of the course. That's where you really need to know the course is that last bit from the, the hospital in. It's totally different on race day. I drive through there, and I don't recognize it because – the way you see it on race day and the way it looks in normal life are two totally different things. Right. Well, I think that's, um, you know, that's another good piece of advice is, um, especially those first couple of miles going through Hopkinton where, because there are so many people, you can't even see the downhill part that you're running. You just a sea of people and it's so easy to let yourself just kind of go with it and not realize the damage that you're putting on your quads two miles in that you can't really make up again. Yeah, you can't undo that. Exactly. Yeah, so I'm with you there. The Boston's kicked my ass enough times. So, hey, that's great talking to you, Mike. Good talking to you, too. We will, we will see you out there in Boston this year. All right? All right, All right. see you, man. Thanks. This story is by my brother Dave, my older brother Dave, and it's called Shots of Whiskey for the Snowplow Drivers. And he starts off, Being that it is a cold and snowy day today, I thought I would relate a story of how our father, Russ, attacked problems head-on with simple and imaginative solutions. Shots of Whiskey for the Snowplow Drivers. The Russells were the original Skyfields Drive hilltop residents of Groton. When we moved in, no other residents shared the top of the hill, and during heavy snowstorms, we were pretty much on our own. This was the mid-60s, a time long before the advent of DSS when kids were considered free labor for the menial physical tasks. For example, 
Adults run the chainsaw and split logs. Kids carry wood and drag brush. To shorten the response time of the town plow crews, Dad came up with the brilliant but elegantly simple plan to bribe the plow drivers with hot coffee and shots of whiskey to encourage them to come by our neighborhood first. It was this type of imaginative thinking and direct approach that made him a legend and our go-to guy. We would usually see the plows start up the hill from 119 through the windows off the deck and have about five minutes to prepare. Since Mary Lou was the oldest but couldn't go out alone, she and I usually got the nod. We had to wear dark clothing to contrast with the snow and flag down the plows without getting plowed into the snowbank ourselves. Over time, we learned that it was best to stand across the street and approach from the driver's side door as the plow traveled slowly up the hill. Each driver usually downed one on the way up and stopped for a second on his way back down. As expected, the shots of whiskey were far more popular than the hot coffee. In fact, if we tried to offer only coffee, the drivers would ask if the whiskey was already in there. It did not take the DPW long to learn that there was free whiskey available up on Skyfields Drive, and there was not a quicker or better plowed road in town. Often we had to service a whole line of snow removal vehicles waiting for their whiskey and make multiple trips back to the house for refills. Mom would count the trucks by looking down towards 119 and have our resupply ready. I think this serving experience prepared both of us for work later at Johnson's Drive-In. We were also expected to keep track of repeat clients and inform them that our parents say you're shut off when they reach their third shot limit. One morning, my friend Jason and I decided to surprise the paper delivery man with a free shot of whiskey around 5 a.m. When he saw us coming, he drove away in terror. By that time, life in Groton had changed forever. David. Thanks for listening, if you have been. I know this is entirely self-serving, but too often we seal off the past and look to the future. As we get older, we begin to unwrap those packages. And last time I checked, I'm about 1700 bucks or more into my $2,000 goal, and the Boston Marathon looks like it's going to be crazy this year. Thanks for all my friends who have helped me out, and I will see you in a couple of weeks. Thanks for joining me on my journey with purpose.